Tuesday, November 3rd. Percy approached the front desk at Shady Pines with a slight limp. From afar, she may have looked like many of the residents. When the front desk clerk and her chatty friend saw Percy, they fell silent and handed over her vest and badge. Percy hobbled around the corner and sat in a chair to don her vest and pull her hair into a ponytail. The clerk must have thought Percy had continued to walk and was out of earshot because she nearly yelled to her friend, You hear about her? Daddy issues, I've heard, but granddaddy issues, right? (laughs) (laughs) As Percy made her way into the dining room, Denise approached her while whisper yelling, Percy? Percy? What are you doing back here? Percy wheezed as she drama limped toward the hostess stand. Must finish my debt to society. Damn, my girl, I missed you. But is it true? They said you fell in love with one of the residents. Mr. Fancy Blue Eyes. The one that went missing. That guy? That guy was just my friend. I had tea with him a few times. I was amazed by how clear he could keep his mind so close to death. Adam was just my friend. Yeah, I knew it. Denise's bracelets jangled as she brushed the rumors away like cobwebs. I didn't believe any of it. I know you heard me say, greet them and seat them, but don't get attached. But what are you doing here? Percy didn't need to be there. She could be sleeping. She hadn't finished all of her community service, but Chuck the Duck had given her a reprieve. She was more surprised than anyone that she didn't actually want to quit. Not really wanting to delve into the why, she chalked it up to preserving karma. Oh, Denise, I'm here for lunch. I read on Yelp that the egg salad here is to die for. Yeah, I heard you hit your head pretty hard. Tell the truth. You just miss me too much. I I really did. And I got your card. Thank you. But you forgot to write an update about your go-kart girlfriend. How's that going? Oh, that is going. That classy lady is the real deal. Listen, welcome back and all, but I have to go balance the books before those doors start opening. We'll start you back slow. Can you handle rolling silverware sausages? The rest of November. Throughout the rest of her stint at Shady Pines, Percy ignored Denise's advice to just greet him and seat him and became attached to a lot of people. After her glimpse at Adam's past, both real and imaginary, Percy began to wonder about the younger versions of other residents. Using her ankle as an excuse, she made frequent stops at dinner tables for impromptu interviews. Percy discovered that one woman, Dahlia, had been the wife of a diplomat. Dahlia told a story about hosting a dinner party for an important Chinese government official. When he saw their piano, he commanded she play. But when she refused, every man in the room stiffened, and her husband shyly urged her to just give them one small sample. Dahlia calmly announced that one of her roles as the ambassador's wife was to demonstrate the values and norms of her home country, and that here, women could not be commanded to do anything. After hearing her story, Percy looked at Dahlia in a new way. Dahlia, who was dressed in elastic waist baby blue polyester pants and a t-shirt covered with large pastel flowers. 
Percy also met Alberta, who'd been an editor for a well-known fashion magazine, and Thomas, a man who'd invented the scrolling numbers on gas tanks. Alexandra grew up on a cattle ranch, riding horses and learning to lasso. But when her father died from an infected wound, she had to move to the city and work in a canning factory. And Alphonse was an only child from a poor family who became a wealthy but miserable father of 11, and later, after some employees embezzled his fortune, a dirt-poor but happy grandfather of 35. Most touching was Margie's childhood secret. She told Percy that between ages 8 and 10, she hid toys and candies for her neighbor who had Down syndrome. Mick was old, Margie said maybe 25, but just like a kid her age, he'd giggle with anticipation as he lifted the flower pot at the edge of their adjoined back lawns. Margie'd started hiding treasures when her mom refused to let her invite Mick to her 8th birthday party, and two years later, Mick passed away. Margie thought no one knew what she'd done, but Mick's mother hugged her the hardest at his funeral. She'd known Margie's secret all along. She'd said her son thought the gifts were coming from his dad, who'd left when Mick was 12. Each time Percy got to know another resident, she felt deep regret. At first she'd assumed she was missing Adam, but eventually realized it wasn't mere transference. She dehumanized every single one of them. She felt regret for having grouped all of the Shady Pines residents into a broad category of old fogey. Characterizing them as complainers who'd given up on life was like criticizing a tree for its rough, uniform trunk while ignoring its roots and grand branches. She told her dad at dinner at night that he'd been right, and he looked at her softly and said, I know, and now, Percy, you're right as well. Tuesday, December 1st. Even after her community service ended, Percy continued to visit Shady Pines every Tuesday after school. But this time, instead of coffee and creamer, she lugged around a camera and a microphone. Her social anthropology teacher had approved her proposal for her final project. It was called Senior Moments, and it aimed to challenge the social norm of smudging older people into humanity's backdrop. Okay, Betsy, um, I'm going to set up the tripod and we'll get you going. The first story Percy recorded was from 89-year-old Betsy. Okay, Betsy, just sit, relax. You look great. Now tell me your story. I remember going to the state fair every single year, but when I was eight, now that was the most memorable. My older sister and I were in the line for the bathroom. We were behind two other girls, and in front of those girls was the fortune teller. She was real tall, with long brown hair, costumed in a poofy dress with hundreds of tiny mirrors hanging from the skirt. The girls in front of us were conspiring to yank a couple of those little mirrors off as souvenirs. Just as soon as they'd reach out to pinch one, the fortune teller moved or shifted her weight. It was as if she knew. This got the girls riled up and their giggling got louder. Now the fortune teller heard them laughing. She looked back at them, and that's when they saw, we all saw, 
her bumpy nose, and her scarred cheek. It was like she'd been burned. She'd been burned real bad. And that shut him up quick. They fidgeted around for a second, insecure probably, or maybe even mad for having their fun spoiled. One of them whispered, She's a witch. Said it like she was spitting, you know. Like, yuck, a witch. I saw the woman's shoulders droop. Just barely, but I saw it. She took on the look of a starving houseplant. My sister Celia, whose heart broke for any sad thing, said to the girls in a hush just loud enough for the woman to hear, No, she ain't. She ain't a witch. She's a woman. <laughs> Celia. Celia was just that way. After we left the bathroom, the fortune teller was waiting for Celia by the door. Darlings, Darlings. she said, real dramatic. Darlings. She crouched down to see us at eye level. She was so tall. It seemed like it took forever for her to get down to us. And her perfume. She smelled like a fresh-picked rose. She asked very serious, Have you ever had your fortunes read? And of course we shook our heads no way. At the fair we'd only ever eaten candy and rode a couple of the safer rides. Pa caught them all death traps, and we'd had to sneak. We didn't have any money for anything more, and anyway, weren't old enough to wonder about our futures. What would young girls do with the future? Future much further than the next state fair or Christmas? Now, of course, here at the opposite of young, I'd give a lot to have all that future ahead of me again. Can you imagine? The fortune teller smiled rose back up to her great height, opened her arms over us, and said, Come with me, dears. Come with me, dears. I wouldn't have gone if Celia hadn't grabbed my hand and pulled. We followed her down a row of stands and displays through the crowd of people, the mirrors on her skirt reenacting the birth of every star. We climbed up creaky stairs onto her little square stage. We sat at her table with our backs to the crowd and she adjusted herself on her stool, situated her skirt just so, poofing it as the sun glinted off all those mirrors. Yeah, her face was burned, but she looked like a princess. Your hands? She asked us. Your hands. Celia gave her one hand, then grabbed mine and pulled it forward. The woman grabbed him. It was like time stopped. She stared into our palms, into our eyes, and then at our hands again. And she said, Oh, dears, it pains me to give you this news. But both of you will soon experience a great sorrow. It will feel better over time. But you will carry it with you always. When it happens, ask the trees about it. Every tree knows. Every tree knows, my dears. And suddenly it was as if a dark cloud had passed and the sun shone. She went on to tell Celia about a spelling bee, and me about horseback riding. We giggled afterwards, on the way back, 
because I was allergic to horses. And Celia, well, Celia was a terrible speller. She could barely spell spell. We had forgotten the stuff about Great Sorrow. But in a month's time, wouldn't you know it, our little cousin. He'd fallen while playing in the creek, and his friends didn't see till it was too late. He was... He was pulled along downstream for a mile. The fortune teller was right. It was the deepest hurt. I've never, ever felt worse. Lost people since, but something about being that young, contemplating the loss of someone even younger. I remembered the fortune teller, and I took to her advice about asking the trees. I'd stand next to them and ask why I had to lose my little cousin. Why he had to lose us. Why his mom. Well, as you may guess, the trees didn't say a thing. I didn't give up, though. I climbed. Climbed up closer to where I thought their ears and mouths might be. But there was no answer from up there, either. But I still didn't give up. Since the fortune teller said to ask every tree, she said every tree. I climbed, asked, and listened. Climbed, asked, and listened. Scratched my knees. Calloused my hands. I climbed, asked, and listened. All the trees I could get up into, I climbed, asked, and listened. Thought of it like I was collecting points. With each tree, I'd be closer to the number of points I needed to get the answer that would take all that pain away. So I'd climb up. I'd ask. I'd listen. I'd climb down, hike to the next tree. The thing I heard was always the same. Figured they were as mad as me. We should just both give up. And the years passed. I was dating a young man who was studying biology in college. I asked him about trees, and he told me more than I thought there could be to know. He said, tree roots stretch out and touch all the roots of all the other trees, either directly or via little baby mushroom roots that run for miles underground. He said all the roots underground look like all the world's switchboards side by side. Now he used that as an example because he knew I was a switchboard operator. And he was right. The very next day at work, it dawned on me. Since all trees are interconnected, I didn't have to ask every tree. One tree would give the same answer as any other, because they all know the same things. And by now, maybe they'd have talked it over and had an answer to my question from so long ago. And you guessed it, that night I went out to climb a tree. Felt foolish, a mere grown woman climbing a tree, but I needed to know. Can you help me? I asked. My cousin, he'd have been 15. I wish he were here. Why can't he be here? Just like before, there was no answer. I sat up in that tree and cried. I felt so alone. Then out of the blue, realized maybe that fortune teller didn't mean for me and Celia to actually talk to the trees. Silly. Can you believe it took me so many years to realize how silly that is? She meant for us to think like trees. Of course she did. Use them as an example for how to have sorrow. 
See, trees are solitary, but even so, are never alone. Under the surface, they're all connected and all part of the same thing. And us humans, we're just the same. When tragedy separates one from the rest, we should hurt because it is a terribly sad thing. We should also know all is not lost. That person we lost isn't gone. They're still with us, just like we're always here for everyone else and always will be, even if we were only really known by one other person. And Percy, that's the end. That's my life's adventure. And you know what? I still ask trees things, but only from habit. When I really need to feel better, you know what I do besides talk to a tree? What's that? I close my eyes, and I think of the mirrored baubles on that fortune teller's skirt. If you think about it, the only little mirror that reflects your face is the one you're looking directly at. Meanwhile, the rest of them reflect everything else at the very same time. To feel better from anything, it helps to imagine what's in all the mirrors. You know, I do think she was a witch after all. I think she put a spell on me that day that made all the hard times I've had just a little bit easier. Oh, one other thing, Percy. You aren't going to share my age, right? Just say 80-something if you have to say anything at all. Thursday, December 10th. On her way home from her latest recording session at Shady Pines, Percy had an epiphany. She'd noticed many of the stories she'd compiled, shared common threads, and some even overlapped. One had a major character that seemed almost identical to a minor character in two other stories. Three people told stories that started very similarly, but ended in strikingly different ways. Percy had become inspired to fashion a tapestry out of the accounts she'd collected to weave the stories in and out of each other, to build a basket that could hold all of humanity. She would demonstrate that, though all our experiences and perspectives differ, we are each a facet of the same ageless person. As she edited her interviews, stopping, rewinding, cutting, and adding transitions, she saw her interviewees in a new light. When they were just faces separated from their stories, something strange happened. Maybe she was experiencing residual brain damage from the gas vapors at Fort Knox, but she saw what might be inspired truth rather than a hallucination. She began to catch flashes of youth in the faces. She began to see the elderly ladies and gents as young women and girls, young men and boys. What if underneath those wrinkles and inside those hollowing bones, they were all still children? Children living inside heavy, slow bodies, caged inside institutional walls? Percy thought of what Betsy had said about having no need for a fortune teller as a young girl. At that young age, she didn't think twice about her future. But as the years piled on, the future became front and center and fleeting. Excited by this revelation, Percy rushed inside her house and grabbed the first piece of paper she could find. It was a large yellow envelope sitting on the top of that day's mail. She began to scribble some ideas on the back 
and then flipped to the other side when she ran out of room. When she saw the return address on the envelope, she stopped cold. It read, Adam Denville, care of Adeline Albero, 172 Main Street, Madison, Wisconsin. Honey, I had to go overnight some notes to a lawyer. Are you okay? Looks like you just saw a ghost. Percy handed him the envelope and he said, Oh, you did see a ghost. Uh, yeah. Could you open it? I can and will. Let's see what you've got here. Percy bit the inside of her cheek as she waited for her dad to read the cover letter. Well, Percy, it's about his will. Uh, he's asked that you travel to Madison, Wisconsin to receive an item he's bequeathed to you. That's nice. And, oh, here's a check for 1000 bucks to cover expenses. Jeez, that'd cover three trips. Or one and a half for each of us. If I go, I'm not sure whether I want to, but if I do, would you come with me? Road trip? Dad, don't make me regret this. I want someone there who can confirm that whatever's happening is actually, you know, happening. But that doesn't mean I can't make a mixtape for the trip, though, right? Even though with this dough, we might as well fly. Hey, there's something else in here. She recognized Adam's handwriting on the small envelope. It said, To Persephone, from Adam. Crap. This is getting a little intense already. In the days leading up to their trip to Wisconsin, Percy focused on her interviews at Shady Pines. But the unopened letter from Adam haunted her. Its existence conjured the day back in September, before Adam had gotten young. That night when he'd not come to dinner at the Shady Pines dining room. When she'd watched for him from the corner of her eye, and then started to see him everywhere. For the next few days, she saw both his 18-year-old ghost and the 82-year-old man she'd actually known. She saw him peeking from behind curtains, sitting in cupboards, dangling from trees, and crouching behind bushes and mailboxes. Friday, December 18th. The sense that both Adams were always nearby continued as she and her dad headed to the airport. Young Adam was riding in the trunk, wrapped in a tablecloth. She caught a glimpse of old Adam curled up on the baggage carousel just before he disappeared into the cargo area. Both Adams were on the plane with them, too. Maybe they were on a road trip together. Maybe they were sharing a mixtape. When Percy and her dad disembarked, neither Adam was anywhere to be seen. She and her dad arrived at baggage claim unaccompanied and were the only two people in the shuttle to their rental car. When she closed the door to her hotel room, she was the only one inside. She'd wanted to save some of Adam's money, but her dad insisted they splurge on two separate hotel rooms. Percy laid on the bed and surprised herself when she started to cry. She'd been forced to miss young Adam all over again. 
Percy dreamt. She dreamt she was sitting up on that hotel bed, opening Adam's letter. She slid it from the envelope, unfolded the paper, then unfolded it again and again. She kept unfolding until it filled the entire room. When she was nearly suffocated by paper, she finally reached the inside panel, only to see it was blank. She woke with a feeling of clarity. Instead of being disappointed that the letter was blank, it was like she'd been freed, like she'd been offered a new beginning. Percy dug the envelope out of her suitcase and crawled back onto the huge bed. Insulated by crisp white bedding and marshmallowy pillows, she slowly opened the card. And it was not blank. Adam's handwriting was neat and swoopy, like an Appalachian horizon. Dearest Persephone, I am in the underworld now. And you've made it so welcoming for me. There is nothing rotten here, nothing objectionable. Rather than branded with decay, everything is fresh, like the generous spring air that lofts into a treehouse. Every moment here is a reprieve, an intermission, until it all starts again. It's true rest here. I want you to know, Persephone, that I loved you. Now don't think me a lech, for I mean love in the most innocent of ways in its most crystallized form. It is true what they say. We are all the same. We all have aspects of every other person in us. The real definition of love is the visceral understanding of that fact. Love is the ability to hold another gently, turn them in all directions, and see a reflection that is part you, part them, part both, and part all. Love is the recognition of another's truth, and your role in making it even truer. But you, Persephone, you are like a diamond because there is such clarity in your reflection. Like my dear Lydia, you are a diamond with eyes that look back. You, Persephone, are sublime. I loved you. And from here in the underworld, I still do. And when I come back in some other form, whether a monarch butterfly, German shepherd, a tree, or a human person, I will love you then too, just as much, without even knowing you, because you are part of the beauty in everyone and everything. Safe travels to Wisconsin, my dear, and my deepest gratitude for seeing me so clearly and reflecting my true self back to me. To travel gently into the underworld, I needed to see myself through your eyes. Ever fondly, Adam Nicholas Denville. Love Makes Old New was written and produced by someone called Dora Henry. For more information and sound credits, visit lovemakesoldnew.wordpress.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave an iTunes rating. Thanks for listening.